and welcome to episode 183 of the Tennis Podcast. My name is Nick Amell. I'm your host. This is the show where every week, either myself or my sidekick host bring a top tennis list on anything from any genre. The other person doesn't know what that list is ahead of time, and they try to guess items 1 through 10 in real time, along with you, the folks at home. Today, my guest sidekick host is Erica from the Unsung Horrors Podcast. Erica, how are you feeling today? I came here to chew bubblegum and embarrass myself and my podcast, <laughs> and I am all out of bubblegum. And you're all out of bubblegum? That's okay. I got plenty of hot dog flavored bubblegum ready for you Excellent. right here. That's an interesting concept I hadn't <laughs> considered. Regret saying it. But Erica, I've listened to your show for a long time, Unsung Whores. As you know, I hope by now, you and your co-host Lance bring reviews of underseen horror films which includes in-depth episodes covering underseen horror gems. So the name kind of says it all, but I actually first met you through your other podcast, Customers Also Watch, which uh, I know you stopped doing, but me and Brandon were both guests on that show in the past. Yeah, the Customers Also Watch one was, was a great start way to kind of get into podcasting and start out for me. And it just focused on Amazon Prime and following those suggested movies. And then I got to the point where I started another podcast with my friend Lance and really just wanted to focus on not being given just a short list of choices, but really focusing on the movies that I love, which very specifically are horror movies and much more deeper cuts, you know? So if anyone listening is a horror fan, you probably aren't going to find stuff that you've heard of if you look at our list of episodes, because we have a specific rule with ours where they have to have fewer than 1000 views on Letterboxd. So some deep cuts on there, but we're all about the underdogs. And so we want to bring those out into the forefront for folks. It's a really fun podcast. One thing I love about it is I am a self-proclaimed horror, I call super fan even. I thought, at least I thought. And then I started listening to this podcast and I'm like, wow, I'm really out of my depth <laughs> here because you guys cover some super obscure films, which I love. And you know, the thing I was listening to one this week, uh, I think it was Hell High. Mm-hmm. And that one is a good example because like I've never seen that movie, never heard of it. And I hadn't even watched the movie when I listened to your podcast, but I didn't need to because you guys take us through kind of all the main plot points. And I watched a few clips on YouTube and I pulled up a few Google image searches. And you, So I say that to say you don't have to have seen every film you guys cover to enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you. Anyway, kudos to you and Lance. You guys do a great job and you guys are horror experts. And that's why I knew when I had you on the show today that we had to do something in the horror genre. So I thought to myself, well, like 99% of my listeners aren't going to be familiar with the films, all the films you guys cover. Mm -hmm. But I also don't want to cover just the horror super hits like The Conjuring that everyone can talk about. So what's something in the middle? And what I found is I found the top 10 most profitable horror films ever. And that keyword is profitable because that is taking their return on investment. So their production budget compared to what their box worldwide box office gross was Okay. to find the most profitable films. So okay. most of these films started out as little independent films, mm -hmm. something that probably would have been covered on your show. And then because of circumstances, they blow up and do these mega hits. Right. So I, I felt like it was kind of the best of both worlds in that way. Okay. Ooh, I might struggle a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, these are all household names. Okay. But again, most of them started as, you know, little indie film out of someone's handheld camera that blew up. So yeah. the spirit of Unsung Horrors is captured in these. Okay. But everyone will have heard of these. Okay. Movies. Sounds good. Yeah. 
<laughs> My sources today are Variety.com, Looper.com, Box Office Mojo, IMDb, and of course the good people at Wikipedia. So a little write-up from Variety.com says, There's always been one genre that reliably draws audience. Horror. Horror movies often get away with minuscule price tags because they don't rely on special effects, although that's changing more and more these days, and actors agree to work for scale with the promise of future profits and back-end deals. For context, big blockbuster movies, so think about uh, Top Gun Maverick or Jurassic World that are out right now as we're recording this. Those movies have 200 million plus production budgets. So the movies we're talking about today, the, the most expensive one was $11 million, and most of them fall under $1 million in production budget. And so the, this list that you're guessing assesses films purely as a ratio of worldwide grosses compared to the production budget. doesn't include marketing fees and things like that. So again, it's the return on investment you're guessing here. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So it's not like highest grossing of all time. It's the difference between production and actual. Correct. Okay. All right. I'm getting my brain in the right place for this. Just for more context for you and the listeners, like the highest grossing horror film ever, at least unadjusted for inflation, is It, Chapter 1 from 2017. That had six or $700 million worldwide. So that movie's not going to be on here because its production budget was way higher. Yeah. So its return on investment is ratio-wise lower than the ones we're going to be talking about today. Okay. And today has a good mix of classics and some newer stuff too. Okay. So, you couldn't stop talking about how great at horror films you are and how knowledgeable you are, more knowledgeable at horror than anyone in the world. So, really, you're going to put yourself to the test now. Put your money where your mouth is. You know, is. I feel like you talked me up here. <laughs> I am a very humble person. I did not... <laughs> uh, I don't know. Okay. So, I have a very obvious one that I'm 96.2% I'm sure is number one. <laughs> so, I'm going to save that yeah. for last because I, I know you like to do that. So... I'm going to go right out of the gate with a banger, though, and I don't think it's number one, though. I'm going to go with Halloween, John Carpenter's. John Carpenter's, the original Halloween from 1978, is number three All in right. the top ten. The third most profitable horror film ever. I'm going to assume you've seen this movie plenty of times? A few times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Cool. So, it came out in 1978, and it cost $320,000 to make, to produce, but it grossed at the worldwide box office $47 million. That means it made back 147 times its production budget. That's a big number to make back. And it kind of set the tone for the future of horror and movies in general. Yeah. And I know like we're not counting in like sequels and all of that other stuff that goes into right. to this, like we're talking individual films, but really like, God bless John Carpenter. All that man has to do now is just sit back and hold his hand out for a paycheck to, and <laughs> so he can buy more video games to play. And like, I mean, good for him. Like he, he deserves it. Like, He's earned it. At least he is still alive to see how much his older films are now appreciated. Like there's so many directors and there's probably one I'll, I'll bring up in another guess who didn't get to live to see how much. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, like some of their older films were appreciated, but even some of their newer ones, like 90s and later, are now starting to gain some kind of appreciation. Maybe not by me, but some people. I was looking up while you were talking, like, what's the last thing he did uh, in Hollywood? And it, the Halloween, the new Halloween from 2018, he returned as executive producer and composer for mm -hmm. that. I had forgotten that. So yeah, he's still active. He's, he's 74 as of now, enjoying the fruits of his labor. Yeah. Let's talk about that labor. 
the movie. If you've somehow not seen this movie, shame on you. The plot centers around a mental patient, Michael Myers, who before becoming Austin Powers was committed to a sanitarium for murdering his babysitting teenage sister on Halloween night when he was just six years old. Fifteen years later, he escapes and returns to his hometown where he stalks a female babysitter and her friends while under pursuit by his psychiatrist. One thing I appreciate about the original Halloween compared to the newer films, or not just the newer ones, but any of the sequels really, is the supernatural element was at best subtly suggested at the end. But in the newer films especially, it's heavily implied that he is supernatural, which I don't love that. I saw the 2018 one and I was not a fan, except -hmm. for the John Carpenter score. And so I just opted not to continue watching them. And I saw, you know, I saw the trailer and it's like every time he kills, he transcends or some shit. And I was like, oh, fuck off. I don't want to watch this. So, yeah. Yeah. And the same. I mean, there it gets into some of those elements in the later sequels. Like, you know, they they start getting weird. I'm going to get tomatoes thrown at me. I think it's six where there's some like weird cult involved with Michael Myers or something like that. Is that that Season of the Witch? No, that's the one that doesn't involve Michael Myers, which is actually part three is like excellent. And and people are still doing their like, oh, hot take Halloween three is actually really good. I'm like, it's not hot take anymore, honey. Like people have known that for a very long time. And you know how we love hot takes here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But that one is not one to your point. Because yeah. everyone knows that one's good. Yes, it's excellent. It's not Michael Myers and it's a great fucking movie. So, yeah. Nothing can compare to the original. I don't think any sequel, including Season of the Witch, can compare to the original Halloween, just my opinion. Yes. It's considered one of the greatest and most influential horror films ever made. And it popularized many tropes that have become completely synonymous with the slasher genre. Such as the final girl trope, the killing off of characters who are substance abusers or sexually promiscuous and the use of a theme song for the killer. And that theme song is a really critical part of the Michael Myers Halloween experience. Yeah. John Carpenter composed it. Still gives me chills. Yeah. So some trivia for you. You probably knew this, but it's Jamie Lee Curtis's film debut. She made just $8,000 for the role. And because of the low budget, wardrobe and props were often crafted from items on hand or that could be purchased inexpensively. For example, production designer Tommy Lee Wallace created the trademark mask worn by Michael Myers throughout the film from a Captain Kirk mask purchased for $1.98 from a costume shop on Hollywood Boulevard. Have you heard the story? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Carpenter recalled how Wallace widened the eye holes and spray-painted the flesh a bluish white. In the script, it said Michael Myers' mask had the pale features of a human face and it was truly spooking. I can only imagine the result if they hadn't painted the mask white. Children would be checking their closet for William Shatner <laughs> instead. <laughs> Which, to be fair, might be scarier. Yeah, it could be. He's a nice man, though. He hasn't done anything wrong. I'm going to be really no. upset if something comes out about him. <laughs> right, if he gets Bill Cosby or something. Oh, man. <laughs> that will never happen, I hope. But no. Like how different, you know, if this was a Mandela effect sort of thing and we lived in an alternate universe where all these years and all these, you know, 10 plus Halloween films, all the iconic Michael Myers masks were all replaced with the William Shatner face instead, Mm -hmm. how different would our lives be? Where would William Shatner be today? Would it have ruined his career or helped it? Ooh, good question. It's hard to say. I'd be curious to know what happens in that universe though. Yeah. Anyone out there knows how to bend time and travel to alternate universes where we can make this happen, let me know. Although in the infinite universe theory, this probably did happen in one timeline. That's true. Could be. 
We'll come back to that. Okay. Last thing is on Halloween is Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune gave the film three and a half stars out of four and called it a beautifully made thriller and that the tension is considerable. More than once during the movie, I looked around just to make sure that no one weird was sitting behind me. I just thought that was a neat little review from uh, a, a critic that's not always kind to horror films. He's historically. famously not kind yeah. of horror movies. He, he he also is very adverse to when children are in peril in movies, which is my favorite yeah. thing in the world. So, I mean, <laughs> I <know>. yeah. <laughs> so, he's not my favorite critic. <laughs> and just so we have you on the record, um, you want children to die and you hate them? In film. In film. In film. Yes. Okay, gotcha. So, everyone's kids out there are safe. I'm actively rooting for it. I have a wall of child murder back here, if you can see. Yes. Hang on. <laughs> oh, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's more child murder to come today on this list. So, that was Halloween at number three. Okay. Give another guess. What about a film that was inspired by Halloween? Ooh. Was inspired? I mean, I, that's a lot of movies <laughs> inspired that inspired. Was well, like the most derivative, like direct... Some people would say ripoff of Halloween. Oh, like Scream? That's a good guess, but no. I'm thinking something much closer timeline-wise to the first Halloween. Oh, like Friday the 13th? Friday the 13th. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah I would have said that, but I don't necessarily... I mean, I know it's a slasher, but I guess it's derivative in the sense of like the stock and slash element, and the slasher element of it. But yeah, okay. I'll, I'll give it to no, you. No, yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I think there is definitely different key differences that anyone that's watched all of both franchises could point out. But mm -hmm. as far as like the broad strokes oh. and the general public and the mainstream, mm -hmm. they go side by side. Yeah, for sure. I mean, them and Freddy are like the three. Okay, so Friday the 13th, is it the original one? Is it higher or lower? I'm going to say, I'm going to say higher. So wait a minute, higher as in? Like it's like four through 10. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I asked the question weirdly. You answered correctly. Okay. <laughs> it is higher in that context. It's number four, okay. right behind Halloween. This one came out two years later in 1980. It had a production budget of 550000 and a worldwide box office of $60 million. It made back 109 times its production budget. The plot follows a group of teenage camp counselors who are murdered one by one by an unknown killer while attempting to reopen an abandoned summer camp. So here's your children death that you're actively rooting for. It was inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween, and director Sean Cunningham wanted Friday the 13th to be shocking, visually stunning, and make you jump out of your seat. However, critical response was divided, while some praising the film's cinematography, score, and performances, while numerous others derided it for its depiction of graphic violence. So where do you stand on Friday the 13th? I like it. I mean, I'm not like a super fan of the series. You know, it just it sort of falls in the middle for me when it comes to slashers. Mm -hmm. I definitely Halloween is up there. Black Christmas pieces. I could name a few others, but I, it's one of those movies where it's like you watch it, you know exactly what you're going to get. I think yeah. it gets silly later on, you know, Jason yes. X and becomes campy. It does. Intentionally so. Yeah. Seven, I think, is kind of an interesting one because you've got like the psychic girl against Jason part. Oh, God, which one is it? Wait, which one is New York? New York is, is Jason Takes Manhattan. So I think that's yeah. eight. Yeah. Because he goes to hell after <laughs> he that. He goes to space. <laughs> and then he goes space to space. Is after New York. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's neat. He goes to New York, he goes to hell, and then he goes to space. Yeah. Which is a lot like kind of the listener's journey 
like listening to tennis podcast. <laughs> Start in hell. You probably end in hell too. But one thing I like about Friday the 13th is what I was saying earlier about Halloween, where Michael Myers is sometimes supernatural, sometimes not, leans on that more. But with Friday the 13th, you kind of know what you're getting right from the beginning. And it's more consistent in that way. Yeah. And it's more, I'd say, fun, whereas Halloween's more unsettling and like traditionally scary. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they both have their pros and cons. I, I think I would take Friday the 13th, though over Halloween, just personally. Okay. I'll forgive you for that. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's a couple of opinions I've gotten wrong today in your book. (laughs) I mean, you're lucky you didn't come out with some best horror movies of the 80s or, you know, 90s or whatever. I I, Because I would have just disagreed with everything on whatever list you brought. I would have just been like, "This who wrote this fucking list? Give me their name because I'm going to (laughs) fucking at them. Just (laughs) As you know, since you're a listener... Nine times out of 10, I try to get a list that there's no arguing it, right? Right. Like, these yeah. are the most populous cities or these are the best selling whatever. Yeah. I try to do that, but yeah. not always because me and Brandon definitely did do the best horror films according to some critic. Yeah. I actually wrote that down. It's episode 89 in our archives. We covered that. Yeah. I had disagreements with that list. Yeah, I, sure I remember listening to that one. And I might have tweeted at you guys after that one and been <laughs> like, who the fuck is you know, wrong? <laughs> yeah, I think Seven was on there, the movie. And I'm like, I mean, I love Seven, but... Yeah, sure. I don't count it a horror, though. I wouldn't either. And I also wouldn't, even if I did, I wouldn't put it in top 10. No, all time is definitely, I think we can agree, the killer turkey. Thanks killing. Thanks killing. Oh, obviously. Number one. Yeah. All time. Best Number movie one. of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Featuring Gerald the Turkey, if anyone remembers him from one of our bonus episodes. Okay, so contemporary scholars in film criticism have credited Friday the 13th for initiating the subgenre of the stalker or slasher film. I definitely equate Friday the 13th closer to slasher than I do Halloween, even though they both are slasher mm-hmm. films. Friday the 13th is considered one of the most successful media franchises in history, not only for the success of the films, but also because of the extensive merchandising and repeated references to the series in pop culture, which brings me to my final point, which is Jason's hockey mask has become one of the most recognizable images in all of pop culture. People that have never seen Jason don't even like horror films, they all know the mask. Which mask do you think is more iconic? Just general public. Are they going to recognize Michael's mask or Jason's mask first? I'm sure it's Jason. Yeah, I think so. I think I went as Jason for Halloween when I was a kid one year. That tracks. That yeah. sounds right for you. <laughs> <laughs> How old? Four or five? I was at least, you know, nine or ten. <laughs> you know, maybe you've covered this in one of your episodes. I don't remember. But did your parents or family, whomever, kind of support and nurture you horror-wise as a kid? Not at first. I mean, I saw Jaws way too young. I saw Jaws when I was six. And mm. yeah, I still won't go in the ocean. But I think after a certain point, they, they just were like, it was whatever, too far gone at this point. So it wasn't necessarily nurturing uh, so much as fuck it. <laughs> just let right. it be. So I was pretty guarded and sheltered. When it come, came to like rated R films, for example, as a kid, I would end up sneaking them later in like teenage years. But mm-hmm. I grew up very afraid of horror films, nightmares, didn't want to watch horror. I don't remember where the change happened, but somewhere along the way, probably late teen years, I really started to gravitate toward it. And now it's probably 80% of everything I watch, if you were to calculate it. Anyway, yeah. so that was Friday the 13th at number four. You already got Halloween at three. Yes. What is another guess? 
I'm going to swing big here. Okay. Because I'm thinking this one might be on the higher end of the budget that you mentioned. And just because of the critical acclaim that it got, it might have been one of the most Mm -hmm. profitable ones. Is Get Out on the list? Get out of here with that guess, Erica. Where do you think it ranks? It is in the list. Oh, okay. It's not in the top 10? No, it is. Oh, okay. Uh, Probably 10 then. Seven. Okay. Not too far. All right. Yeah, seven. It does have, I think, the second or third highest budget on this list today, four and a half million, uh, which in in modern standards, that is not high at all for a film. It was released in 2017, but it made 225 million at the global box office or 50 times its budget. Did you see this? I did. Yes. Yeah. I'll get your thoughts on it here in a second. Okay. It's a 2017 American horror film written, co-produced, and directed by Jordan Peele in his directorial debut, which was a surprise for all of us that this guy who made his bones in comedy could produce this and some other really good horror films. The plot follows a young black man who uncovers shocking secrets when he meets the family of his white girlfriend. I I think that's spot on, shocking secrets about (laughs) the family he meets. (laughs) Some interesting trivia is this entire film it's an Oscar-winning film. I mean, it won, let's see. Screenplay, yeah, Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Mm-hmm. Additional nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. But it was shot in just 23 days. And the film received widespread critical acclaim. And it's maintained a strong reputation since its release. And it's often cited by critics as one of the best films of the 21st century. And in fact, the Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay as the greatest of the century so far. Wow, that's high praise. That is high praise. Do you think it's warranted? I know you like it, but is it that warranted for that high praise? I like it. I think that's saying, giving it that much credit, saying quite a bit. I I think because it's so different than what, let's call the normal crowd or the normal moviegoer is used to seeing, that I, I can see them saying something like that. It was very original, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great movie. I think it deserved the nominations that it got. I think it's a bit of a stretch to say it's like the greatest thing written this century, though. That's Yeah, I do too. That's saying a bit much. I mean, I haven't like sat and thought about this, but I would guess it's in like my top 20-ish films of the last like 10 years, maybe. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, let's get out. Number seven. All right. Which is the newest film on this list. Nothing since then. Okay, good to know. All right. I'm probably going to end up having to guess some movies that I, I fucking hate. <laughs> We're going to end up fighting you and I on this episode. I but swear the, to God. <laughs> the problem is you're probably right. I think I'm an easier audience to please than most. I am not easy to please. So, I mean, I'm like a very specific type of horror movie and pretty much anything that Blumhouse puts out, save Get Out. But that's because they picked it up for distribution. It's not like they... Yep created that project. That's all Jordan Peele. Before I get to the absolute hate ones, I'll go with one that I just pretty much haven't revisited since I saw it when it came out. I'm guessing it's on the list because I think it's 99% single location. So is Saw the original on the list? You haven't seen that since it first came out? No. Why? Have you seen any of the sequels? 
I think I've seen one of the sequels. It's just, it's not for me. Like any of the sort of torture yeah. porn stuff, like, I mean, anything Eli Roth, I'm, I'm going to automatically hate because that guy's a mm. fucking piece of shit. And if you guys don't know that, do some Googling about what a fucking pig he is. Oh, really? Okay. He's just, I, yeah. I can't stand him. So just any of, I'm not really into that kind of horror. And so, and once I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, that was good for them. That was clever. Once you saw it, huh? Yeah. Once I saw, 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 I was over it. So. Completely get all that. Saw is a guilty pleasure for me. The first film is the best by far. I think anybody would tell you that. And it's because it did lean more on the story than it did the, you know, quote unquote torture porn, which mm -hmm. is a well-deserved label. But I've seen every Saw film. They get worse, <laughs> but I still see them. I mean, I can't make fun of you. I've seen every Hellraiser movie. I can't help myself. Right. Like, I just won't ever... They're going to... If you put a new one out, I'm going to fucking watch it. Because that, like, Hellraiser was a huge gateway horror movie for me. I watch all of them. I know that's good. I know they're awful. Yeah. But I wouldn't call them a guilty pleasure by any means. I watch them because I can't help myself. <laughs> That's an addiction, I think. <laughs> I, it, yeah, it actually is. Yeah. But yeah, so you've seen all the Saw movies. My God. I, yeah, I think I've seen the first seen one. seen every single one, including the Chris Rock one, which was weird. Okay. Yeah, I've seen it. In fact, in the original run of Saw, there were seven films and they came out every year for seven years straight. They never skipped a year. Mm -hmm. After seven, they skipped a few years and now it's kind of infrequent. But for that first seven years, first seven movies... Me and my friends went and saw it every night on opening night. And the like the day or two before that, we'd watch all the six films in a row before. So like, wow, we were big into Saw. Again, recognizing that it got progressively shittier <laughs> as it went on, <laughs> as most franchises do. But and the story weaves between every film. They're not standalone movies. So you kind of it's one of those things, too, where like kind of like when you're reading a book and you're not into it, but you just want to see how it ends. So mm -hmm. you just finish it kind of like that. Got it. Okay. Anyway, all that to say, Saw is on here and it's number ah, five. Okay. You're doing great so far. Yeah. Saw number five, it had a production budget of 1.2 million. It grossed 103 million, which is 86 times its budget. The film tells a non-linear narrative revolving around the mystery of the Jigsaw Killer, who tests his victims' will to live by putting them through deadly games, where they must inflict great physical pain upon themselves to survive. Again, some might equate that to listening to this show. <laughs> the frame story follows Jigsaw's latest victims, who awaken in a large, dilapidated bathroom, with one being ordered to kill the other to save his own family. And that dynamic, the two guys in the bathroom, and the twist ending, which I won't spoil for the people that might not know, but I think most people know, but... The film's old enough now, you can spoil it, it's fine. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gonna do it. I think you're right, but for anyone that hasn't watched Saw, watch the first Saw. First Saw is pretty good. Critics agree with that too. It's the sequels that get pretty bad, but it's a very clever, unique ending. Anyway, the film was given a small budget of $1.2 million and was shot in just 18 days. Australian director James Wan, who's now done a million things, including The Conjuring Universe, and Australian writer Lee Wannell wanted to write and fund a film. The inspiration that they needed came after watching the low-budget independent film, The Blair Witch Project. <clears throat> might be a spoiler. The two thought the cheapest script to shoot would involve two actors in one room. Lee Wannell said, so I actually think the restrictions we had on our bank accounts at that time, the fact that we wanted to keep the film contained helped us come up with the ideas in the film. So they kind of worked backwards as opposed to, you know, writing the script and then figuring it out. 
James Wan did not intend to make a quote torture porn film as the script only had one short segment of torture. He said the film played out like a mystery thriller. It was not until the sequels that the plot focused more on torture scenes. The film has since gained a cult following and has been frequently credited as one of the most revolutionary horror films of all time. Mm. That seems a little heavy, even yeah. I'll even admit that, but they're at least one of the most well-known horror films of all time. Sure. I can give it that. Revolutionary. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on from Sawland then. All right. Well, since you already spoiled it, I guess I'm going to get my number one guess then, mm. since you just mentioned it, is, is going to be Blair Witch. So this is the one you already had in mind? Yeah, that was the one I like. Okay. Like when you said most profitable, my mind immediately went to Blair Witch. So I think that one's number one. Blair Witch is like the case study or the quintessential film everyone points to when it comes to like, you know, low budget, high grossing films. Yeah. That said, it's not number one. Oh, okay. It's number two. Okay. Okay. I think I know what number one is then. So I'll save that one. <laughs> yeah. The Blair Witch Project. Don't give me your take on this yet, but I'm mm. very curious to know because I have strong feelings about it. So okay. came out in 1999. It cost $60,000 to make but it grossed $245 million, which is 4,000 times its budget. 4,000 times its budget. I mean, think about it. These guys, these little indie filmmakers, and even the studio that bought it, not in their wildest dreams, I'm sure, that they think that they would make back 4,000 times its budget. Crazy. Yeah. It is a fictional story of three student filmmakers who hike into the Black Hills near Burkittsville, Maryland in 1994 to film a documentary about a local legend known as the Blair Witch. The three disappear, but their equipment and footage are discovered a year later. The purportedly recovered footage is the film we see in this movie. It's found footage. Uh, it was not the first found footage movie, but it was the most famous and it revived the technique, which was later used by other horror films such as Cloverfield and many others. Its promotional marketing campaign listed the actors as either missing or deceased. And I, me and Brandon have talked about this in some of our horror episodes. But I think one of the things that made this film so famous and the word of mouth, this film owes word of mouth to much of its success, is because people didn't actually realize if this was a true story or not. Yeah. Which sounds silly now in retrospect. <laughs> but at the time, yeah, I remember being a kid, I th you know, I was probably 10 or 11 when I first came aware of this movie. I remember asking my older sisters if this was real, if it was true. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot, of, especially young people, probably thought that, of course, none of it's true. It's all fictional. But to help make it seem real, the actors use their real names, something that the main lead, Heather Donahue, says she regrets doing because she said in a 2014 interview that she had trouble finding new roles because of that. Yeah. During filming, the actors were equipped with video cameras. They were given clues as to their next location because the entire script was improvised. The clues were given through messages hidden inside 35mm film cans left in milk crates. They were given individual instructions to use to help improvise the action of the day. So these actors were really on their own in the middle of the woods. The directors are hiding where the actors can't see them and giving them clues to kind of nudge them in the right direction, kind of like a reality show does. The directors move the characters along during the day, harassing them by night and deprive them of food to make them irritable and aggressive toward each other. It sounds like an actual really traumatizing experience for these actors. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> I have a few more notes, but before I get more into it, mm -hmm. what's your overall take on this movie? 
So I this came out in 99. I was yep. 19 or 20 when it came out. Yeah, I didn't believe it was a real story, so I didn't fall for the marketing gimmick. Mm-hmm. But I remember enjoying it when I saw it because it was different and was something that I hadn't seen anything really like that before. And I was like, oh, okay. But I also remember, I don't remember if there's just one or two sequels to it, but I remember seeing a sequel and I was like, my God, like Book of Shadows or something. One of the worst things I've ever seen. (laughs) That's one of the few movies. I, I really hardly ever do this. I can only think of like two times ever where I've stopped a movie midway because I mm-hmm. couldn't finish it. That was one of them. Okay. But there was another sequel that came out like three or four years ago. It was just called Blair Witch. Right. That one got negative reviews. It wasn't great, but I remember thinking this is fine for like, I'm not going to like rank it in my top 100 horror films, but as it's just like a Friday night, it's fine. I didn't hate it, but yeah. some people hated it. Yeah. Blair Witch Project is one of my favorite movies. I think it truly was revolutionary in some of the wrong ways, too. There's been a lot of kind of bad influence from this film, too, admittedly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the time, the marketing for it was super unique and it had never been done. The acting techniques, I don't know if they'd never been done, but they were effective in making the film feel real. And the actors were really not even acting that much. They were really that upset and frightened and irritable. And I know it gets poked fun at a lot now, and there's been a million parodies of it and whatever, but if you just put yourself in that time and place in 1999, I think it's just a really effective horror film. So it's not perfect, but I just think what it set out to do, it does amazingly well. And something else I love about it is sometimes I like when horror films leave you guessing and leave you wanting more. You Mm -hmm. never saw The Witch. There was very little action at all. I mean, the last few minutes are frantic, but other than that, it's very just ominous and suggestive, which was a lesson they could have kept in mind when they made Blair Witch, that sequel, when Mm -hmm. they were a little liberal with showing, you know, you see the Blair Witch's ass and everything. And I mean, she's like twerking (laughs) and stuff. She is putting it all out there. But yeah, I think the original Blair Witch Project is great. I really like it. But I understand it's not for everybody. I will say that watching that movie was probably one of the best theater experiences I've had, though, because even if I'm not getting scared in a film, it's fun for mm-hmm. me to see other people get scared because I know yes, there were people totally. in that theater who thought this shit was real. So you not only have the movie that's in front of you, you have like what's happening around you as part of the experience. And so like, I will give it that you're right. It was a brilliant marketing campaign. It absolutely deserved all of the money that it made for what it did. And it did absolutely achieve what it set out to do. I think those are all good points. And let's not gloss over the fact that this movie is the movie people point to when they say, look, essentially, these directors just paid these actors a couple hundred dollars and went out in the woods and just filmed some shit. And it turned into a huge, like billion dollar media franchise. And I don't know. I mean, there's something to be said for that. Whether you love or hate the film, it's remarkable for sure that they were Mm -hmm. able to achieve that. People like you and me who've seen a million horror films, it's hard, if not impossible, to like scare us anymore. Mm -hmm. But living vicariously through others around you is still highly enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. Although I did remember once I saw The Grudge, the PG-13 Grudge Mm -hmm. in theaters. I mean, I was like 13, but there were girls behind me screaming their asses off as if fucking Freddy had showed up right there and was (laughs) sucking their soul out of their bodies in real time. 
Yeah. I'm like, guys. So, in that case, it took me out of the movie experience instead of into it. Yeah, that can do it. Real quick, that movie, The Grudge, I mentioned with yes. Sarah Michelle Geller, that is number 20, if you're curious. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I, I never would have guessed that one, but... Right. Yeah, same. I had Sarah Michelle in it. You got to be paying her how many millions? Everyone wants to see Buffy, so... Yeah. Back to guessing. All right. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think this one's going to be on there. Original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a good guess. I probably would have guessed it too, but it's not on here. It's not even in the top really? 20, in fact. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, technically, the guys who made it didn't make a profit anyway, because all the money went back to the mafia, so... <laughs> I don't know the story, but... It's a very long story. I, it, it would. It's a whole other podcast for that, but there's okay. a great book about the making of... The author's name escapes me at the moment, but... It's a very interesting read on how the film got made, not just like the physicality that everyone had to go through filming a movie during the summer in Texas with like decaying real animal carcasses and things like that, but also like what happened after with distribution and basically all the money went went to the mob after after the fact. So, these guys who made it didn't even see any of their profits. So, that's interesting. I'm going to look that up. But, you know... Something about those movies like Texas Chainsaw and Halloween and Friday the 13th that I love is it's all or mostly all practical effects, Mm -hmm. right? There's no special effects. It's like if you saw it happen, it happened. And I love that stuff. Yes. Not a big CGI fan. So, no. Mm. So, on this list, you have there's two movies from the same franchise. Okay. That are both on the list. And then there's one like classic horror film. Okay. How many do I have left? Let's do a recap. So, you're missing 10, you're Uh missing 9, you're Uh missing 8, you have 7 Get Out, you're missing 6, 5 is Saw, 4 is Friday 13th, 3 is Halloween, 2 is The Blair Witch Project, and you need number 1. Okay. Is Exorcist on there? Had to be. Okay. This surprised me because The Exorcist actually has the highest budget of any movie on this list, $11 million it costs. And that's in 1973. Like today, that's like, what, I don't know, 30 or 40 million probably? Yeah. So that's expensive for a horror film, especially in 1973. But it grossed $441 million, which is 40 times its budget, which was enough to put it at number nine. Okay. Now, if you tell me you don't like The Exorcist, I'm going to tell you to (laughs) leave and to fucking unsubscribe from the show as well. (laughs) No, The Exorcist is a perfect movie. Okay. It is. It's, it's about as perfect as it gets. I agree. Part three is fucking excellent too. Part two, I know it's a weird one, but like I've come around on that one. So I've never seen any of the sequels. I've only seen The Exorcist. Okay. Did you see the TV series that was like a few years ago? I watched the f- first season and then I broke up with cable. <laughs> so, uh-huh. but yeah, I don't, I don't have, I don't even have a paid streaming or cable. Like no streaming. Well, I know paid streaming. So, like, I have, like, Tubi and what, whatever comes with Prime because I have that for... Yeah. I still check out movies from the library. That's still a thing, folks. (laughs) That's incredible. Like, (laughs) that's the most incredible thing I've heard today. I mean, look, like, there's eight libraries in my city and there's one that's down the street from me. And so... Most of what's on, like, say, Netflix is all modern movies. There's maybe like 5,000 titles. A lot of the stuff that I want to watch is from the 70s and 80s. And if it's not streaming, 
yeah, I can probably, depending on the type of movie that it is, maybe find a legal adjacent way to download it, which I'd prefer not to do. If the library has it and it's at a branch like way up north, like all I have to do is say, yeah, I want to pick this up at my local library and they send it to my library. So like I'll put like six or seven movies on hold at a time at my library. And once they're all ready to pick up, I go get them. It's a great thing. Your local library is a wonderful resource, people. No, I agree. But I have to think you're one of like four people on the entire planet that still rent movies from the library. And I'm surprised that these libraries are still keeping space for like the old 70s movies and stuff like that. Yeah. And they have new stuff in there too. Yeah. I have to think when you're in there renting movies from the library, Mm -hmm. like everything stops in the library and everyone's watching you to see is she okay? Does she know she's renting movies from the library? (laughs) And the librarians are like slowly handing you the movie as if like you're contagious or you're going to attack them or something because it just doesn't happen. You're not renting because your library is free. You are borrowing from your library. Mm. And if you put it on hold, it goes on a very special shelf in the back where it's like, here's all the on hold stuff. So I pick up my on hold stuff. I go to the self checkout, scan my movies and I leave. So no judgment from the people being like, who's a weird girl getting movies from the library? Yeah, well, the self checkout machines are all talking to each other the second you leave, though. I know. I know. (laughs) You know, who do we have to thank for libraries being free for all of history? The fact that libraries are and have always been free is interesting. It is. Yeah. Well, Well, anyway, on that note, (laughs) we're talking The Exorcist. So, the movie follows (laughs) the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl and her mother's attempts to win her back through an exorcism. And this movie was... I'm sure it wasn't the first, but it's at least the first mainstream movie that really explored exorcism as a topic. And now there's a million of those movies. It was written for the screen by William Peter Blatty, based on his 1971 novel of the same name. Several directors, including Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Penn, listeners of the show, they turned the film down before William Friedkin took it on. When the movie was originally released in 1973, some viewers suffered adverse physical reactions fainting or vomiting to scenes in which the protagonist violently masturbates with the crucifix. <laughs> like, that's not funny, but just like reading that in a sentence, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, you don't see that anywhere ever. Like, there's no context anywhere where you see those words in the same sentence, except this movie. There was also heart attacks and miscarriages reported from people seeing this movie. A psychiatric journal published a paper on cinematic neurosis triggered by the film. And this sounds so fucking ridiculous now, and it is. But you have to remember, this is 1973. I mean, fucking Happy Days was like, movies did not get into territory that this movie got into. So, yeah, people just weren't ready for it. Yeah. Several cities attempted to ban it outright or prevent children from attending. Uh, It did spawn a franchise, though none of the sequels even approached the success of the original. So there's lots of legends about the troubled production on set. I'm sure you've heard some of these. For example, a fire destroyed the majority of the set and Blair and Burstein suffered long-term injuries and on-set accidents. And ultimately, production took twice as long as scheduled and cost more than twice the initial budget, which again goes to why this film was relatively so expensive. But it did win the Oscar for Best Sound and Writing for an Adapted Screenplay, which again, for a horror film of this magnitude, is uh, big for the time. Just think about it. Horror, you went from like, like, I don't know, Teletubbies to It. 
like in one <laughs> move, like as far as movie topics go. I don't know how you get what I'm trying to say. Like it's yeah. just so extreme and out of nowhere for the time. Yeah, American audiences weren't really used to stuff like this. You know, there was plenty of exorcism and things that are much more graphic happening in European and Italian sure, and Spanish sure, sure. horror films. But yeah, Americans, especially a mainstream one produced by a big studio, by a big name director. Yeah, like that. And that's a big part of like why I love this movie, too, is just like the lasting effect that it's had. And like the fact that as much garbage has come out in the last 10 years or so from from Blumhouse that's just completely reliant on jump scares that this continues to be considered one of the scariest movies of all time. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the religious element of it, too. Yeah, can definitely add some layer to that. I didn't grow up with that. So that didn't have any sort of effect on me. I wasn't like, Oh, my God, the devil is real. See, I did. I did grow up with that. And growing up, I was told, don't ever see a movie dealing with demons or possession. Because when you see that stuff, you're opening your mind to become possessed. The devil will get in there. And, you know, I believe that shit big time as a, as a little kid. And so even the thought of seeing The Exorcist is just not within the realm of possibility or desire. Yeah. But I've since grown out of that the same way you should grow out of Santa Claus, believing Santa Claus. But for those that do believe in this stuff, it's even more effective, I would yeah. think, as far as being scary. For sure. Okay. Well, there's one more film that's even older than The Exorcist that's in this top 10. Older than The Exorcist. Okay. So, Exorcist is 73. It's not any of the universal horror, like none of the like no. 1930s. Okay, I didn't think so. Ooh, is it Psycho? It's Psycho, of course. Hey! <laughs> you didn't think Psycho would be on here? For some reason, I no, it, it didn't. I guess I just never really thought of it in terms of like one of the most profitable movies. I, it just never, that's never been something I associated yeah. with it. I love that sure. movie. It's, a, you know, damn perfect movie, but it's just never crossed my mind of how financially successful. I mean, he did a great job marketing it. He was like, you, you know, he said, oh, you yeah. can't, you can't come into this movie. If you're late, fuck you. Buy a ticket for a different show. And there were signs saying like not to spoil a movie for others. Exactly. Sort of yeah. Yeah. And killing off the, who's supposed to be your star of the film. That wasn't just not a thing at that time. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great movie. I just, uh, for whatever reason, it just didn't, I wasn't thinking of that. But tell me stuff about Psycho, Nick. Shame on you, you psycho. <laughs> it's number 10. It cost $800,000, but it made $32 million, 40 times its budget from 1960. Okay. The plot centers on an encounter between on-the-run embezzler Marion Crane and shy motel proprietor Norman Bates and its aftermath. Psycho is based on Robert Block's 1959 novel of the same name, I didn't realize the movie came so quickly after. I mean, it's like a oh, year yeah. later. It's loosely inspired by the case of convicted Wisconsin murderer and grave robber Ed Gein, who is also the inspiration for some other people on this list. Psycho is now considered one of Alfred Hitchcock's best films and is arguably his most famous work. Often ranked among the greatest films of all time, it set a new level of acceptability for violence, deviant behavior, and sexuality in American films, and is widely considered to be the earliest example of the slasher film genre. I don't consider it a slasher, but I get how it's kind of an entry gateway to that world. Yeah, proto-slasher, yeah. we'll call it. 
Janet Lee, her character, she's murdered in the shower. That's the famous, like, one of the best well-known scenes in all of cinema. That is the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, who we know from Halloween. It's kind of interesting getting a, a booty full of Lees on this episode. <laughs> so that scene, the shower scene, that's the scene where the shower's going, the woman screams, zooms in on her face, and she gets stabbed. Hitchcock said there were 70 camera setups for 45 seconds of footage. That number's been disputed, but still, a lot of camera setups. Psycho was nominated for four Academy Awards, but after his death in 1980, Alfred Hitchcock's death, Universal Pictures produced follow-ups, which include three sequels, a remake, a made-for-TV spinoff, and a prequel TV series set in the 2010's Bates Motel, which is a pretty good show. Not great, but not bad. Psycho, you're a fan? Yes, very much. The remake is the absolute worst fucking most pointless movie ever. The remake. Which one is that? Gus Van Zandt directed it. It's got Vince Vaughn and Anne Heche. Vince Vaughn? How did I miss Oh yeah, this? he plays Norman Bates and it's terrible. But no, I love Psycho. I don't necessarily think... I don't know if I would call it his best film, but I, I mean, Hitchcock made so many fucking movies that it's hard to say... It just comes down to like your favorite and like you would think that my favorite would be Psycho because it's a horror movie, but I actually revisit Strangers on a Train or Rear Window more than I revisit Psycho. But yeah, like it, it came out really quickly after Block wrote mm -hmm. it because pretty much all of what Hitchcock directed were adaptations. And he had a, a woman who worked for him who was constantly like feeding him like, hey, we should, here's this really great book. We should adapt this. We should adapt this. And worked really close with him. And so he had to fight for rights all the time. Like there's some that he didn't get that he really wanted. But yeah, I love Psycho. If you could only choose one, Psycho or Exorcist. Oh, that's not fair. No, I don't answer those Let's questions. Let's hear the hot take. Come on. No, see, here's the thing. I don't have to live in a world where I have to choose between those things. You know, I mute so many fucking horror accounts on Twitter because they'll post like, you can only choose three from this list to keep and everything else has to go. I'm like, no, I fucking don't have to do that because all of these movies I either own or they're, you know, I can get them from somewhere, my library, if I want. Like, mm. I hate that fucking question. It's like, no, I don't have to choose and I never will. If someone's like, oh, you can, what about this or this? I'm like, no, I'm not going to choose. I, I can have them both. I own them both. So there. Hmm. That's my answer. Crunchy or creamy peanut butter? See, I like them both. I don't have to choose. <laughs> no. they, both ex they both exist. They're both on my shelf Damn right it, now. Damn it, Erica. <laughs> uh. Let me ask you something. Yeah. Other than some of the Saw films, which you already said, What's the most famous well-known horror movie that you have not seen? Most famous well-known. I haven't seen Scream 4 or 3. Okay. I only just watched, I don't remember what year it is, Trick or Treat, the one with the little pumpkin oh. head kid. Yeah, I've actually never it. seen that. I only just watched that this year because everyone was like, Erica, there's a child death in it. And I'm like, okay, fine. I guess I got to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched it and I fucking hated it because here's the thing is like, I'm 43. I know my taste in movies well enough. And so when I, f when that movie first came out, I saw a trailer for it 
it had Marilyn Manson doing a cover of Sweet Dreams. And I was and I saw like the aesthetic of it. And I was like, this movie is 100% not for me. So I didn't I never saw it. And I just had no interest in it. And everyone fucking loves that movie. And I just I didn't have any interest in it. And then I finally watched it. And I was like, yeah, I trust my taste. I didn't like this movie. I'm never going to fucking watch it again. Hey, I can't get enough of the hot takes. Jennifer's Body, I've never seen. Oh, yeah. I don't have any interest in watching that one either. What about like all the Conjuring universe movies? Oh, my God. Okay, so I saw, I think I saw the first one and I was like, yeah, I'm not, that one had Lily Taylor in it, right? Yeah, Lily Taylor's in it. Okay, so yeah, I saw that one and I was like, this is not dumb and I don't like these movies. I think Annabelle is part of that whole universe. Yeah. I try not to involve myself too much in those because I know they're not for Annabelle's me. number 11 on this list. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, God. Okay. Annabelle, the original Annabelle is number 11. And Annabelle creation is number 15. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, here's the thing. I don't like those movies. Like, I, I did see the last Conjuring movie, The Devil Made Me Do It. Oh, okay. That's the one I haven't seen. <laughs> what I don't like about those and what just made me roll my eyes so hard was at the end, it's basically about like the power of love can overcome evil. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, that's not how this shit works. And it's so reliant on jump scares and just for no reason. Totally. I don't like horror movies like that. There's no interesting characters. There's nothing new. Being, everything is just predictable. That being said, yes, I hate these movies, but they serve a purpose in the world because if these movies aren't making money, then other films like The Witch, mm. Get Out, Hereditary, Midsummer, things like that aren't getting made. It's a great point. Studios aren't going to give money to these other, they're not going to take a chance. So I understand how the system works. I get it. Those movies just aren't for me. I think they could be an entryway. I think you called Hellraiser the gateway horror film for you. I think Conjuring could be a gateway for, you know, a teenager or something or, or even someone older to kind of be like, oh, I kind of like this horror genre. Let me start exploring more. They're safe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're yeah. just the least offensive type of movie. And I like offensive. Like, I like shit that will just give you fucking nightmares and make your skin crawl. Like, I don't yeah. like stuff like that. Like, I think a lot of people my age are still hold poltergeist in high regard. And uh, I grew out of that one. I grew out of that one a long time ago. I was like, this is like fucking suburban Spielbergian fucking Spielbergian, yeah. It's just not for me anymore. Like, yeah, I was like, I was into it when I was a kid, but it's okay to grow out of movies. You don't have to love everything that you loved as a kid. Fuck, if I did, God, my taste in music was cool. (laughs) That's another alternate universe scenario where we all still only watch the movies and listen to music and eat things that we liked as kids. Right. I'd still be eating dino-shaped chicken nuggets. I mean, come on. <laughs> hey, I, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Absolutely. We have a lot of listeners that I know eat dino-shaped chicken nuggets still. That's fine. It's time to feel the rage. Join us on Film Rage, where we talk movies, current releases, coming attractions, streaming, and classic films as well. Directors and actors, beware as you cannot hide from the rage. My name is Bryce, and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hey, hey. And Murray. Yo. Why is it you always talk all the time? I can't understand I why you're sweet, sweet voice. This is the Merman, the voice of reason. These two can't awesome. agree on anything most of the time. Some movies are Mondo, some are just... Suck. Suck.
Every week, something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and feel the rage. Well, from dino-shaped chicken nuggets to horror films. Yes. You just need three more. Okay. Let me give you 11 through 20. Okay. So number 20, I already said, is The Grudge. Mm -hmm. 19 is the Amityville Horror from 1979. Okay, I can see that. 18 surprised me, The Invisible Man from 2020. Huh. The one with uh, Elizabeth Moss. Okay, I didn't see it. That's another one I didn't see. I thought it was fine, but I'm just surprised it made it on this list. 17, uh, this one surprised me too, A Quiet Place. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Everyone loves um, Jim from The Office, so yeah. yeah. Hey, I don't want to hear fucking bad thing about Jim from The Office, damn it, Erica. Don't do that to me. <laughs> I know not to disparage Seinfeld, which I would never. Thank you. I'll just keep my mouth shut about The Office. 16 is It from 2017. Mm-hmm. When you take out profit and you just look at gross revenue, It is the most successful of all time. Okay. And I'm guessing you like that since there's plenty of children dying. I actually have not seen those. Whoa. I do have to. They're on my list. But here's the thing is like, I, I love, I remember loving like the original TV one with Tim yeah, Curry. With Tim and Curry. so there, I just, I had, I was just like, I don't want to see this. Like, it's good. So I'm going to watch it. I have to. So my question earlier about like, what's the most well-known horror film you haven't seen? It's probably that. It's probably that. Yeah. You should watch them. I'll report back once I finally get around to watching. Okay, so that was number 16. 15 is Annabelle Creation, Erica's favorite movie. I think you said you have an (laughs) Annabelle tattoo even? Oh, yeah. It's uh, actually (laughs) on my forehead, so loud and proud. (laughs) No, I've seen that one because a kid gets mowed over by a car in the beginning of that film. Well, actually, I have like the king of kids dying in horror movies, at least mainstream horror movies, for you here in a second. But right before that is number 14 with Halloween, the 2018 remake Hmm. okay 13 is split that one with what's his name he has split personalities oh is the m night Shyamalan movie it might be i'm looking it up yeah that is m night Shyamalan starring james mcafee wow okay anya taylor joy is in that yeah okay i never would have guessed that movie yeah that cost nine million to make but it made 279 million 12 is the one I was talking about with the kid murders, and that's Sinister with Ethan Hawke. Mm. Did you see that one? I did see it when it came out, and uh, yeah. Didn't love it? Mm-mm. I liked it. It's so trope-heavy. Like, the, the guy who wrote the screenplay for that, like, he has a very distinct... I think it's Robert Cargill. It is. He's very, like into formulaic horror and he'll even share it like he'll be like look here's the rules for writing a horror movie you have to do all of these things and i was like you're why we don't get anything different like because you're just making these formulaic movies like sinister is one of those films where like if i hadn't seen it and i sat down and i read the synopsis and what it's about i would be like okay i can make a list of all the things that are going to happen in this and be right about a lot of them Look, I don't disagree with any of that. In fact, I'm reading like some reviews. It says Sinister received positive reviews for its acting, direction, music, and cinematography and atmosphere. Those last two things I think are where it excels. The music and atmosphere. Sure. Anyway, but it received criticism for its jump scares and other horror cliches. So I don't think you're alone in that criticism, but I don't know. I liked it. 
Okay. Plus Ethan Hawke. I like Ethan Hawke fine, but... Yeah. Okay, anyway, so yeah, mixed feelings on Sinister, but number 11 is Annabelle, which we talked about. So all you have left now is 8, 6, and 1. I'm going to give you a couple strong hints. Number 6 was made from the same people that made another movie on this list, and it's relatively recent, 2010. Okay. And this, to me, is like, I forget the phrase you used, but like The Conjuring, like... Oh, Dumbhouse? Safe, safe horror film. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it is Blumhouse. <laughs> safe horror. Okay, so so it's Blumhouse. So we are talking about The Conjuring, and we got the animal movies out of the way. So We talked about The Conjuring, but they're not on here. Okay, so what's the other thing then? Um, but it has the same main actor as The Conjuring, Patrick Wilson. Okay. Insidious. Oh, with Darth Maul? (laughs) Yes. Oh, God. I love that you called him that. That's what he looks like. No, he does. He totally does. (laughs) Oh, God. I saw the first Insidious and I just did not like it. I've never seen any of the sequels. But it came out in 2010. It's number six. Okay. Made 67 times its budget for $100 million gross. It's the first installment in the Insidious franchise. The story centers on a couple whose son inexplicably enters a comatose state and becomes a vessel for a variety of malevolent entities in an astral plane. It was made from the same guys who made Saw, James Wan and Lee Whannell. James Wan said in an interview with Entertainment Weekly that he was very proud of Saw, but he also felt that the movie, specifically the violence and gore of it, put some people off and made them hesitant to work with him. So, he wanted to make Insidious, prove that he could make a movie without the level of violence found in Saw. I think Saw is a much better film than Insidious, but teach their own. It has a 66% on your favorite website, Rotten Tomatoes, with general <laughs> consensus stating that aside from a shaky final act, Insidious is a very scary and very fun haunted house thrill ride. I think it's PG-13, and it's just really hard to do a good horror film when it's PG-13, in my opinion. Again, it's one of those things like they need to exist so that you can get horror fans, you know, like yep. at a certain age and got to indoctrinate them somehow. But <laughs> like, I don't want to see them. I'm a fucking grown ass woman. I don't want to see a fucking PG-13 horror movie. No, so. neither. Us grown ass women got to stick together. And fucking I'm a. with you. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move the fuck on from that. You just need okay. eight and one and they're both part of the same franchise. So, I think number one is Paranormal Activity. Yes. Okay. Boy, oh boy, am I curious for your hot takes. But hold (laughs) on to them. Paranormal Activity is number one. It was released in 2007. It cost $15,000. And it made $193 million. And that's just the first movie. And that is 13,000 times its budget. God. Say what you want, but the movie is a fucking success story. It centers on a young couple who are haunted by a supernatural presence in their home. They then set up a camera to document what is haunting them. Not just horror, but any genre, any film ever, it's the most profitable film ever made. Director Oren, do you know how to say his last name? Paley? 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 P-E-L-I? He said that the dialogue was natural in the movie because there was no real script. Instead, the actors were given outlines of the story and situations to improvise. A lot like Blair Witch Project. The actors were only paid $500 for their work on the film. 
So I think they got a good raise for the second film. But before I go on, tell me your thoughts on this movie. What do you think, Nick? I mean, (laughs) okay, it's another of those where I'm like, good for you, movie. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw it in theater. It was another like good theater experience because people were like losing their minds. That was my takeaway that I was going to share. Yeah. I remember people crying in it and leaving. (laughs) Yeah. I'm serious. There were people who left the theater. I watched it then too. Yeah. I think that experience gave it some more gravitas than it probably deserved in that. And when I saw it, because I remember really liking it when I first saw it. And I remember leaving it and texting a friend and being like, hey, you got to go see this. And then when I rewatched it, and I've seen it a couple times since, I mean, I still don't hate it, but it's no Blair Witch Project. I mean, sure. But this is another one kind of like Hellraiser for you and Saw for me where I've seen everyone and I'll continue to see everyone even though I acknowledge that they're kind of (laughs) shitty. And the last one on Paramount Plus was really shitty, but I still watched it and there's another one in development that I'm going to watch that one too. Wait, how many are they up to now? I have no idea. Seven films have come out and the eighth one is planned for this fall. Wow. Okay. Yikes. I don't hate the movie. I'm like, it's one of those where I'm just, like I said, good for you movie. But I don't like found footage films. I had a fun time watching it in a crowd yep. in a theater. And I don't think I've ever rewatched it. And I might have gone to see one of the sequels in the theater just because I was like, oh, that would be fun with a crowd. You know, one bad thing about the sequels, although... I think there was one sequel that didn't do this, but the rest did where it, they're all found footage, right? hmm And the first one, it makes a lot of sense. But with each film that comes after that, it becomes a little more preposterous that every actor is always filming everything in every movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know. Do you go through life every day, Erica, just always filming everything you do, even though you think no one's ever going to see it? No, this is actually very uncomfortable for me being on video right now. So, Yeah. <laughs> I get that. That's the thing with found footage. And that's why like, I have a big problem with it is you can only find so many ways to have a good excuse for people to be constantly filming. Blair Witch had a good excuse. They were making, they were making, yep. it was like a movie within a movie kind of thing. It was you a know, doc- like, they were making a documentary. Exactly. So you have an excuse for that. With Paranormal Activity, it's like, okay, we're, we're trying to record these things that are happening, but then like all these other sort of like mundane tasks, you don't have that. And so when other people try to mimic the success of stuff like Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity, they're not able to find a good excuse for why do we have to keep filming? Like Wreck does that really well because she's Mm -hmm. live broadcasting. She's doing a news story. So of course, like news people are always like, don't stop filming. That makes sense. Like, it's frustrating to watch those movies now. So, yeah, for the rest, it becomes kind of hard to suspend your disbelief. But I think the first one's pretty good. Well, yeah, let me tell you more about that one. So, okay. $15,000 was what, what they used to make it. And it was eventually picked up by DreamWorks. Uh, DreamWorks' plan was to remake the film with a bigger budget. Same director, though, Oren Paley. And only to include the original version that we have all seen now. That original version was going to be included as an extra with the DVD of the big budget version. The director, Oren Paley, agreed but stipulated that a test screening be done of the original film as he shot it for $15,000 
before going ahead with the remake, believing it would be well-received by a theatrical audience. During that screening, people began walking out. The filmmakers were afraid that the, the film was bombing until they learned that the viewers were actually leaving because they were so frightened. He then realized the remake was unwise. And you and I both said we, we saw some of that too. Mm-hmm. Especially Paranormal Activity did the same thing as Blair Witch Project, which is kind of ironic that it worked again in 2015 when this came out, that they pretended it was real and all the marketing. I mean, I was wiser this time. I knew it wasn't right. real, but I'm sure there were people that did think it was real. Actors used their real name, all that. I don't know. I mean, it sets a certain tone for the film. Okay. Yeah, that's all I got, but all right. Paranormal Activity, one of its sequels is number eight, and that's Paranormal Activity 3. Really? What did 2 do wrong? 2? <laughs> I didn't like 2. I actually did like 3. Okay. I think it's just a better movie. Okay. Came out in 2011, $5 million budget, so quite a bit more than the 15000 in... You know, I'm trying to think, like... I don't even know what they spent that money on. Yeah, I was just going to ask him, like, why, if it's a found footage movie, like, uh, what? Okay, never mind. Yeah, I mean. I don't know how movies are. There's a little special effects that I can think of, but really not many. I mean, not millions of dollars worth, but. They had a fat, like, catering company help. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe the, uh, I was going to say that the actors from the first one who got paid 500 bucks are now demanding, like, a million each or something, but they're not even the third one. Oh. Yeah, no, I totally would. Okay. But anyway, this one's number eight. It made back 41 times its budget, though. It's set in 1988, so this is actually a prequel to the first one, okay. where young sisters Katie and Christy, who are in the first and second movies as adults, they befriend an invisible entity who resides in their home. And it's set 18 years prior to the events of the first two films. At the time of its release, it set a new opening weekend record for a film in October. And it is the highest grossing film in the Paranormal Activity series. It actually has a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not bad for a horror film. And the review says, While the jolts and thrills are undeniably subject to the diminishing returns that plague most horror sequels, Paranormal Activity 3 is a surprisingly spine-tingling treat. Erica, how many spine-tingling treats have you had today? Two? Amazing. (laughs) Thank you for that. I think I'm up to four or five. I lost count. But the more spine tingling, the better. Am I right? I mean, I would like something else tingled, but I mean, that's for... Oh my God. All right, let's move on. So, Paranormal Activity, (laughs) we got it. You did the top 10, Erica. You did pretty good. Yay. You didn't do perfect. You didn't do great. You didn't do as good as someone with your horror credentials might expect you to do, but... You know what, though? I'm proud of myself for not knowing certain movies on the list. I'm going to leave it at that. Like like Insidious? Yeah, exactly. Like I didn't know like Insidious or Paranormal Activity 3 or Sinister. Well, that was top 20, but still. That was 12. Yeah. I'm proud of myself for not knowing those things. I, I actually feel better about myself. And we're so happy for you that you feel better about yourself. I appreciate the confidence boost, Nick. Anytime. Okay. Well, let's go back through. So the top 10. Most profitable horror films ever made. Number 10 is Psycho. That's the one with Vince Vaughn, we said, right? From 1998? Or no? That's no. That's not funny. Oh, that's not? Okay. No. Sorry about that. Not at all. (laughs) Number nine is The Exorcist. Number eight, Paranormal Activity 3. Number seven, Get Out. Number six, Insidious. Insidious, am I right? Fuck yeah. 
Number five is Saw. Four is the original Friday the 13th. Number three is the original Halloween. Number two is the Blair Witch Project. And number one is Paranormal Activity. Yay, we did it. You know what's even more horrific than these horror movies me and Erica are talking about? It's podcast reviews. Ah, the horror! Maybe not, but I'm going to take us to podcast review land anyway, because every week on this show, I read podcast reviews about this show from listeners of this show. And the first one I'm going to read now is from Aloise Cano on Apple Podcasts. They say, The cult episode was hilarious and educational. We love a bit of morbid humor. Well, Eloise, I'm glad that the pain, suffering, and torment of the members of these various cults brought you educational laughs. But really, they're referring to episode 175, the largest cults in history. Check it out in the archives, and thank you for that review. One more here comes from Blackstone Valley. This is on Apple Podcasts again. They say, I dropped in for the Seinfeld Best Of show, and I'll be back for more. The hosts are funny, great back and forth between them, and they're knowledgeable, dropping rapid-fire references like a Gatling gun. Okay, I added the sound effects. They finish with recommended and subscribed. Well, if there's anything that makes me happier than reading positive podcast reviews, it's reading reviews from people that also have a hard-on for Seinfeld. Thank you for listening, and thank you for the review. And if you want me to read your review, could be about Seinfeld-related Gatling guns, cults, or anything else, go to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, or Good Pods, rate us five stars, write a review, I'll read it. And by the way, I'll read it no matter what the fuck it says. So get creative. All right, let's get back to the real horror with Erica. It's been a hot minute since we've seen any Friday the 13th movies. Yeah, that one's in uh, Wright's Hell right now. Is it? So okay. I'm sure there'll be another one at some point. Oh, for sure there will be. Yeah, I think yeah. I read... Did I dream this or did I read that Stephen King was working on like a fan fiction of Jason himself? I think... Does that think sound like something? That sounds like something. He might... Like someone might have tweeted at him and he might have like jokingly responded about that. I'm, but I'm not sure if he's actually doing that. So Stephen King unveils his best unused idea, Friday the 13th from Jason's point of view. Mm. So I think he's kind of just talked broadly about like, what if? And people oh, ran yeah. with that as like, yeah, he's so I'd read it. I know Dean Koontz did Frankenstein, which sucked, but. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I know your hot takes before you even say them. <laughs> You're as predictable as a horror cliche, Erica. I know. You can see it. My jump scare is coming a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, Erica, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for coming on. Yes, thank you for having me. I love you guys. I miss Brandon. Tell him I said hi. I don't know if I miss him yet, but I'll tell him you said hi. Brandon is doing well, for those wondering. But don't have a timeline for his return. I do have a timeline for you giving a plug for your show. Tell people where to find it. Any recent episodes you think stand out? Any episodes coming up you think stand out? All that sure. stuff. Sure. So, uh, Unsung Horrors is on Instagram. Twitter and Facebook, just all at Unsung Horrors. If you're on Letterboxd, if you're a movie person and you're logging your movies on there, you can follow me there. I'm at Hex Massacre. Mm -hmm. Recent episodes, you know, we've had um, 
a few where we're just covering single movies, but we do have one that'll be coming up first week of July because there's a website called F This Movie that does a annual movie challenge called June Sploitation, where there's a different category for every day of the month. And so Lance and I participate every year and then we do an episode about it and we share, you know, all of our picks for all the different categories. Mm-hmm. So it's our chance to kind of step away from horror for a minute because we'll be talking about, you know, 80s action and black exploitation films and regional horror. And I mean, there are horror movies in there too, but like Shannon mm-hmm. Tweed is a category this year. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fun challenge. And just like we do with the horror movies, we still like to China come in with like deeper cuts, like I'm not doing like super mainstream stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For those. So that'll be coming up first week of July. And then in August, we're going to be doing, we call it Shawgist. So we'll be doing a Shaw Brothers horror movies. Love it. And Shaw Brothers, for anyone who doesn't know, they're huge Hong Kong, mostly Kung Fu movies. They put out huge, like over 700 films. Damn. But they did do some horror movies. So last year we did Shawgist and did a couple of those. We're going to do that again this year. So that's what we have coming up. So this episode that we're recording will come out, I think, late July, early August. Mm. A lot of the stuff you're talking about will already be well underway when people listen to this. So go check it out. It's Unsung Horrors. And I'm going to have direct links to the pod and all the socials that Erica mentioned in the show notes. So you can just click that. And if you don't want to follow Erica on Twitter or Instagram, you can always just go to a random library and you might see her there picking out (laughs) movies to rent. (laughs) I can't believe this is like such a shocking thing to you today. Like, Erica, I haven't (laughs) rented a movie from a library since I was like eight years old. You borrow, you borrow, you do not rent. You're right. (laughs) It's just funny that like you can't rent a movie from Blockbuster anymore, but you can borrow a movie from the library. It's just, it's funny, but I respect it. By the way, to the Tennis Pod listeners, if you are looking for more Tennis Pod horror, I looked it up. We've done lots of horror episodes in the past, including the highest grossing horror films, the highest budget horror films, the best horror films, the best horror sequels, the horror villains with the highest kill count. There's others too. Just do a search for the word horror. And that's horror, not whore, on your <laughs> podcast app, and you'll see all those. Erica, any final words for our listeners? Watch better movies. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like your slogan if you were running for political office. I mean, really, like, yeah. Let's keep horror alive, people. Thank you, Erica. To all the listeners, thank you so much for listening and trying to think of some clever horror sign-off. So there's here's Johnny. Is there a good what's a good horror goodbye? Oh, you know what? I could go from the Exorcist and just say, you know, thanks for listening, guys. Let Jesus fuck you. There you go. Thanks for listening, guys. Let Jesus fuck you. All right. That'll do it for me. I'll be back next week with episode 184. Goodbye.